Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Nehemiah, chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now, it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you. And have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Steve. Do you know why you exist? Do you know for what purposes you've been made? I think many of us have a general sense of maybe why we exist. The catechism helps us. Question four of the New City Catechism answers, the, answers that question in, in the broadest possible sense, the truest possible sense. The question is how and why did God create us? The catechism answers, well, God created us male and female in his own image to know him, love him, live with him and glorify him. And it is right that we who were created by God would live, should live to his glory. We should live to glorify God. We're made to love him, to live with him and to glorify him. That's, that's the broadest possible answer to why do you exist? And by the way, it's a pivotal answer. That's why you exist. That's why you've been put on this earth. That's, that's the purpose, the big P purpose for why God made you. So, so if you didn't know why God made you this morning, like I got good news, you now have a definition for why God's made you, why you exist. But, but more specifically, what are the particular purposes that he has for you? Do you know? Why, why uniquely do you think you exist? To, to what degree do you feel connected to that? I think the longer I've lived, the more I'm coming to believe how essential it is to know with, with increasing clarity the answer to that question. What, what, is it, what is it particularly 
that God had in mind when he purposed me and my life and you and your life? What are the purposes of God in me? This morning, one of the things we get to experience as we, as we talk about this passage and even as we shoot into the, the book of Nehemiah in this new series is we're going to get to come face to face with the reality that God has purposes, really clear, distinct purposes, and he puts them on people's hearts because he has something he's wanting to accomplish and he wants to involve his people in it, which means he wants to involve us. He wants to involve you and he wants to involve me in the purposes which he wants to accomplish that are going to bring him the most glory. And Nehemiah, boy, I mean, he's as good of a test case. This entire story and narrative is as good of a test case of what that looks like, of what it means to be drawn into that purpose by God. And so this morning, we're going to look at the story that we just read in three basic pieces, which are the three pieces of the, of the narrative. There's a report, there's a reaction, and then there's a, there's a response. So let's look at the report first. Verse 3 said, and they said to me, this is his brother said to Nehemiah, the remnant there in the province who have survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Now, if you know anything about the book of Nehemiah, you know that it's about the rebuilding of the walls. But this is, this, this is the report. This is what's going on that Nehemiah is confronted with. The returned exiles, the folks that over, almost a hundred years before Nehemiah is talking right here, had returned with Zerubbabel from having been in exile for years and years and years. They, they return almost a hundred years ago. Now, to our knowledge, we don't even know if Nehemiah's ever been to Jerusalem, but this we know. The report is, it's not going well. The people, the people who've returned, they're in great distress. Yeah, 50,000 came back with Zerubbabel and about 5,000 with Ezra about a decade before this moment, but things are not well. Not only is, are things not going well, they're really struggling, but there's, there's shame, it says. They're publicly held in low esteem. Everybody around them thinks very little of them. Middle school, all over again. What about Jerusalem? Jerusalem is broken down. The walls are torn down still. The gates are destroyed by fire. All that makes a city a city. It's boundaries. It's the sense of identity that comes from, from having a real city together. Its ability to protect its inhabitants, the capacity to begin commerce and to, to have livelihood, a place to gather for, for civic gatherings and, and corporate living, shared resources, all of that is not possible. None of it exists. Jerusalem is not a city. Ezra had come back and they had rebuilt the temple, but Jerusalem is not a city. That's the report. So what's the reaction? We see in verse four, he says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and mourned for days. I sat down. He hears this report. He says he just, he sat down, which is fascinating because we'll see, Nehemiah is a doing dude. The guy can get some stuff done. But the first thing he does is not to try and go to accomplishment or to performance. The first thing he does is he sits down. He's overcome. And so 
He doesn't go to movement. He goes to letting in the full reality of this news, this, rea- this message of brokenness, this sorrow. It says he sat down and then he, he, he wept and mourned for days. I know we've talked about this before. Like, we're terrible mourners as a culture. I think one of the things, I remember an article coming out right after 9-11, talking about how we don't have any songs as a a community, as a a country. We don't have any songs of lament. We don't know how to, we don't know how to mourn and be sorrowful. Walking with people through sorrow and loss, you find it oftentimes, they're like, well, shouldn't I be already past this by now? And it's like, I don't know, are you? Well, then probably not. But we we need to move on. We don't weep. We don't, we don't mourn. And here's this make stuff happen guy who sits down and lets the full weight of what is taking place affect him truly and fully first. First. Don't get me wrong, he will respond with action. And we'll see that in the rest of the book. His mourning will lead to movement. And true mourning always leads to good movement. But why? Why is Nehemiah reacting this way? It doesn't say in the passage, but I think if we take a look at, at what the message was, what the, what the announcement or the, 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 uh, the report was, how he reacts in his prayer, and then particularly what he ends up choosing to do, we get a clear sense of what it is that's actually breaking his heart. He seems to be unusually undone by how far Israel, and in particular, how far Jerusalem has sunk from the promise, from the promised future and the call and the purpose for which God had given his people and that he had established the nation. If you're not familiar with your Bible, this may seem like it's not super connected, but I think we have to realize Nehemiah is the last chronological book in the Bible. In the sense, it talks about the last period. Technically, Second Chronicles has the last section, but, but Nehemiah is the last book that's talking about the last time in the Bible. And so if we go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, the narrative of the Bible, we find ourselves in Genesis with this promise. Because you see, in order to understand Nehemiah's sorrow, we have to understand what's been broken, And what's been broken is that there's been this story of promise. Israel was going to be this people of promise. And and the first, of course, is Abraham. He's he's the first one that God promises, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. And and through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. And so so Abraham is is the father of Isaac. Isaac becomes the father of Jacob. Jacob has the, the 12 sons and is actually renamed by God as he gives him the promise again, saying, yes, I will do this. As he gives Israel, Jacob, the promise one more time, he says, I'm going to do the thing I swore to Abraham. Jacob has the 12 sons. God, in his sovereignty, takes them down to Egypt and, and protects them, this group of 70 folks. And then he puts them in this incubator for four hundred years. For 400 years, at first it goes well and then it doesn't go so well. They become slaves of the Egyptians and they grow from 70 to about two and a half million. Of course, no one's intermixing in their race because, well, the Jews, the Hebrews are dogs to the Egyptians. And so they get to just grow and grow and grow and grow. They're under persecution, of course. And and God, because he knows what he's doing, he sends a deliverer. After 400 years, he sends Moses and Moses comes 
And if you watch, you know, the Ten Commandments, you know how this goes. Moses shows up as the deliverer of God to come and brings in the, the condemnation, the judgment of God upon Egypt, and he delivers the people of God. And Moses takes the people of God out into the wilderness, and he makes them a people. God, through Moses, gives them an identity. He gives them, he gives them the law. He gives them a way to know how, how to worship so that they can know they can experience grace. He gives them a clear sense of, of who they are. And then he says, I'm taking you to a place. I'm taking you to a land. You're going to not just be my people, and I'm not just going to be your God, but I'm going to take you to a particular place from which you're going to be my people reflecting who God is to everyone. And everyone's going to come through your land, and they're going to be like, who is this God? That's what your purpose is. There's this dream that is Israel. And they walk into the land, and after one generation, everyone starts doing what is right in their own eyes. God, God sends rescuers or judges to try and draw them back in, and he, he res they rescue them right and to the left. And for 390 years, there's this crazy, we call the cycle of the judges, where, where Israel's constantly being rescued. The people are being brought, drawn back towards what is good and true and be reminded of of why God has them in covenant relationship with them. And people, they'll turn, and then they'll turn back, and then they'll turn and turn back. And finally, God gives them a king, King David. And what under David, David being, as God says, the man after my own heart, but what happens is that God, through his power, gives him victory. And, and he starts having true conquest of the land of Israel, and all the enemies are put under his, under his feet. And, and on top of that, he unifies the entire nation in Jerusalem. Jerusalem becomes the city of God. It becomes the place where the national identity, this people of God now have a city of God. And everyone who's coming into that city understands that when they're coming here under that rule, that they get to meet with God. And David prepares everything so that his son, Solomon, gets to build the temple of the Lord. And, it, and it's magnificent. It's like something no one's ever seen. And, and you hit this, just this climactic moment in, in 1 Kings 11 when, when Solomon is dedicating the temple. It won't be like that next Sunday, sorry. But it, it's amazing. And he start, he's praying these prayers and there's gold everywhere. And it's just amazing. Everyone wants to come to Jerusalem. People are bringing their offerings. They want the wisdom of Solomon. Everyone wants to be in Jerusalem. Everyone wants to be near the amazing things that God is showing to his people people. Jerusalem is the place where God chooses his presence to dwell. At the dedication of the temple, the presence of the Lord fills the temple. No one can even go in. And everything falls apart. That is the epitome, the, the, the climax of the story of the people of God in Israel. From there, it's a really rough and painful story. There's this basically slow draining down the drain that takes place. His, uh, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, ends up, because of his poor leadership, the country divides and breaks apart, and the 10 tribes break apart from Israel. And so you got the 10 northern tribes called Israel, and you got the, just Judah and Benjamin left down the south, and there's civil war, and all the kings are terrible. I mean, there's like a couple exceptions in Judah, but by and large, they're just real messes. They don't know what to do with themselves. So God starts sending prophets. 
And he sends prophets to Israel and to Judah, and their message is the same as the judges. Turn back. Turn back towards this covenant relationship that you have with God. Come home. There's this dream that is this country. There's this dream that is this people. There's this dream that is this city. And the people of God are, are supposed to be different than this, and, and, and no one listens. The leaders don't listen. The people don't listen. They just keep sacrificing to other gods. Solomon started it with his multiple wives, foreign wives, and they started sacrificing to foreign gods, and it continued on and on, generation after generation after generation. What the prophets kept saying was, if you will not turn back, thus says the Lord, I will take you out of this land. The very thing that was blessing is supposed to be an avenue to give to the world. I'm going to take you out of it. I'm going to send you into exile. And 722, the Assyrians come in and take the 10 northern tribes out of Israel. They move other people in, they start intermarrying, and basically the 10 tribes disappear. Judah takes a little longer, partly because of the grace of God and his patience, partly because some of the kings have actually moved and repented towards God. But in 586, Babylon comes in, and Babylon tears the whole place down. They destroy, they destroy the walls, they destroy the temple, they desecrate the temple, they burn everything, and they take everyone away. The best and the brightest, and then some. Off to Babylon they go. This is the low point. At this moment, it looks like the story that God had promised would take place is never going to take place. It was illusion, or it was just a blip. It was just this brief moment where between, somewhere between David and Solomon, there was like, I don't know, five years or 20 years maybe where everything was pretty good, and, and then it all just fell apart. But there was this dream that was Israel. There was this dream that was Jerusalem, and it, and it, and it didn't happen and it didn't happen anymore, at least. And, and so from exile, these prophets keep saying there will be a return, and God promises there will be a return. And sure enough, as I said, Zerubbabel, who's actually a descendant of David, brings about 50,000 people back after Cyrus says, if you're a Jew, you can go home. And so, as I said, about 100 years later, here sits Nehemiah, and his heart is broken at the news. He gets this report from his brothers and others from, who come up from Judea, and, and he's just heartbroken. He, he's, he's distressed. He, he begins to weep. He sits down. He just weeps. It was this dream that was Israel. The walls are broken. The people are broken. It seems like all hope is broken. And all the dreams that were going to be true from the promise of the blessing pouring itself out upon all who would come about, there is nowhere to come to. See, the walls aren't just walls. They're the walls of Jerusalem, the city of God, connected to the promise of God, connected to being the people of God. Nehemiah grieves because there is a picture, there was a story that was supposed to be that will not be or is not and maybe will never be again. And he just lets it sink in. That's Nehemiah. That's what happens to Nehemiah. What about you? 
What are you reacting to? What, what burdens you? What, what bothers you? What makes you the good kind of angry? I think the holy discontent has been a famous call. What, what breaks your heart? And I don't just mean like emotionalism, as in what makes you go, this is not how it's supposed to be. There was a dream that was. There was a dream that was education, and this is not it. That there was a dream that was human sexuality, and this is not it. There was a dream that was, that was good local government or good national government, and this is not it. That there was, a, there was a dream that was marriage, and this is not it. There was a dream that was, that was health care and, and medicine, and, and this, is, this is not it. There was a dream that was the church, and this is not it. That there was a dream that was the law and jurisprudence, and this is not it. There was a dream and there was racial unity and this is not it. There was a dream and there was nature in its full beauty, unharmed, and this is not it. There was rest and play and this is not it. That there, there are people in my neighborhood and in my family that, that have no interest in, in Jesus and, and, and so this is not it. This is not how it's supposed to be. What, what is that in you, with you? What elements of your story, the long story, the high points, the hard times, how have those formed you? How do they participate in shaping your particular longings and your particular burdens? What burdens you? Sometimes it's the evil that's happened to you or that's happened to someone that you love that that forges a particular kind of longing and burden that you want to see it be different for someone else. Or sometimes it's just the things that have actually been exhilarating to you, the ways in which you've really been met or something significant, the experience of someone or some things have so been transformative that, that you must help people experience that too. You have to give that away. One person once said, follow your tears and it will lead you to your heart. That's true both for the sorrowful tears, the, the, the mourning tears, as well as the rejoicing tears. If you follow your tears, they'll lead you to the things that are burdening your heart. So what makes you sit down and weep? What makes you come alive? One of the things that, um, for, for some of you right now, some of us might need to sit down and and weep about where we are, where you are personally, what the ways in which, like Israel, you're, you've been in rebellion and you've rejected God and you're just running or you're uninterested in what he has to say or you're playing games or you're lying but you're looking good at it and, and your walls are all burned down, torn down and, and it's worthy of weeping. How many of you need to sit down and weep over the state of your heart today? Been ignoring the reports from your brothers and sister that it is as bad as you think it is? My sense, if that's you, is that what God's inviting you today is to let it in, to really look at it for what it is, to sit down, to weep over it. And then like Nehemiah does, begin to pray.
Through Nehemiah, God invites us to mourn what is broken in ourselves, in, in the people around us, in the world, in such a way that will call us to movement. Because our mourning must lead to movement. Well, that's the reaction. It's the report, the reaction, and, and then there's the response. This is amazing. Nehemiah's first response, and there, there will be others who respond in, in multiple ways, but his first response He said he sat down and he wept for days. And then he continued in fasting and prayer. Continued in fasting and prayer. Four months. By the end of that prayer, which is realistically probably the prayer or the form of prayer that he prayed multiple times, repeatedly, repeatedly, the last line on it tells us something's about to happen, right? He says, Lord, give me favor before this man today, right? That's how the prayer ends. Well, in chapter two, we'll see this and Steve will take us there next week. In chapter two, we'll, we'll come to realize he's about to talk to somebody, the king. And so, so he's praying very specifically about that very particular day, but it says that he continued in fasting and prayer, praying this same kind of thing over and over for four months. The difference between Shislev and Nissan is four months. How about some persistent prayer there? Speaking of, on your chairs, um, I gave you this little tool. If you haven't been with us, we just finished a six-week series on prayer, and how perfect is it that as we enter our first chapter in Nehemiah, we have a prayer that, can I just say, kind of hits almost every single one of them if you look hard enough. This is persistent prayer. This is a tool for you to put in your Bible, and as you begin to pray, to orient your heart using those different means. That's exactly what we see in Nehemiah. He prays for four months. He prays persistently. What a prayer it is. My goodness. He tells God the truth about himself. He reminds him who he is. He's, he's humble and repentant. He's persistent. He's expectant. Lord, Like, give me favor today, mercy today in front of this man, this very specific man. He's honest, painfully honest. What a prayer it is. We see in Nehemiah is that he he first answers his vocation, his call, but from God, not with action but with prayer. And that, that's an incredible reminder to me. And frankly, I think to all of us, we are rush in and do, and then like, God, do you mind coming in and cleaning up behind me and going ahead of me? Nehemiah spends four months fasting and praying, and his prayer, he makes it personal. This fasting and praying, it's, it's, it's very, very personal. He says, and uh, I, we as a people have sinned against you, he says, in all these very specific ways. We've rejected your covenants, we disobeyed your law. But then he, he adds, and ironically it showed up on our screen as only one line, I and my father's house. Well, now hold on. Nehemiah is not 150 years old. He, he wasn't there when, when, when the exiles got yanked out of out of Jerusalem, like I, I, I in my father's house, how is he taking, it becomes personal for him. Why is he taking responsibility? Because, and for those of you 
those of you who've ever found yourself reading Genesis chapter three, where um, where Adam you know eats Adam and Eve eat the fruit, and you're like, if I'd been there, wouldn't have done it, wouldn't have done it. Weak, he's a weakling. No. If you'd been there, you would have done the same thing. And this is what's happening here. What what Nehemiah is acknowledging is, is I would have been the same kind of person. I would have done the same exact kind of thing. Put me in that situation with that kind of context. My heart is just exactly the way those people are. God, will you have mercy on me? Will you forgive me and my father's house? He sees himself and those closest to him as part of the problem, not above the situation, not better than. And yet though he sees himself and his family as part of the problem, it doesn't keep him from becoming part of the solution. It doesn't prevent him from not engaging in the very things that God's inviting and calling him into. And we'll get to see a bunch more of that to come. For many of us, Though we find ourselves either not mourning or, or, or having no movement or, or maybe, maybe both. And why is that? We were kicking this around on Thursday, thinking through, well, why, why is that? Why is there either a sense of there's no mourning, there's not a sense of sadness in us or sorrow or grief or, or weight or burden, or there's no movement? There's a burden, but there's no movement. I thought of a few pieces that I've experienced in, well, life and myself. Some of us have neither mourning nor movement because we're hiding. We hide ourselves, and frankly, we're way better even at hiding our kids from the reality of what is truly broken, what should break our heart, what what would cause us to weep and then would lead us then to action. So why is it, why is it, why do we hide from this hard stuff? Well, I think some of it's, it's just uncomfortable. There's discomfort. I mean, cities are built to try and keep certain areas invisible to other areas. You don't want to see the reality of, of poverty. You don't want to see the reality of the brokenness on every corner at every turn, and so we just look away. Or, or we, we don't have anything because, because we just feel impotent about it. We don't feel like there's anything we could possibly do. I, I don't have anything to make a real difference. I don't have time. I'm barely making my life survive right now. I don't have any resources, any money. I, I can't make a difference. Or the twin, I'm afraid if I were to move in, in the particular direction that I would fail. And I don't think that I can live with disappointing myself in that way, and I don't, certainly don't think I can live with disappointing the other people that that would affect. Someone better suited can do this better, I'm sure. Or it's just overwhelming. And I think that's particularly true for many today. We're, we're swept away by the magnitude of all that isn't right And of course, it's all possibly visible simultaneously on our screen. And so, if I care about one thing, I'd have to care about everything. And because I can't care about everything, I'm just not going to care about anything. Remember someone looking at me saying, if I think if I start crying, I'll never stop. So I just don't. 
And yet this is exactly how God builds our faith. He's a faith builder. And what he's wanting to invite us into is in, into risk. You know that, right? That, that, that's when you meet God most clearly, is when there's something at stake. If there's nothing at stake in your life right now, you're probably not living a very alive life. Maybe not even a life that even feels like it's worth living much. God invites us into that which is broken and to that which makes us weep because he is wanting to fashion us into those kinds of people who will and can bring about his life in that context. And so we ask and he answers. We take risks and he comes through. And when he doesn't come through, then we learn perseverance and patience. He wastes nothing. So some of us hide, and then some of us only want to engage in what's epic. And so we like, we talk about everything, we talk and we talk, we, we write comments on blog posts, and we get, but, but it's just the latest thing, and it's just the hottest topic. And I'm only going to do something if basically I can turn it into a 501c3 somehow, and there's an idealism and a... It has to be big enough to be worth my energy and, and my time. Of course, once you step into the true magnitude of something like that, you find yourself getting crushed by how big it is, how overwhelming it can be, and, and that which used to fuel you passion and no longer survives because it wasn't purpose. And so this epic topic, this amazing grand adventure and we bounce and we bounce and we bounce, but we, we make no real movement in and we don't offer enough of ourselves to be a part of it. We're just very versed in all the things that are wrong. But we have no movement of ourselves. And if that's you, my invitation would be to pursue the ordinary, the ordinary faithfulness, the long story of God that he does in us, to us. It's what we're going to see in, in Nehemiah, the long story of God faithfully building as people are faithful. He builds a people, he builds a city, builds a community. So, look for where God's already at work and join him there. You might seek to follow before trying to lead. And then some of us are, um, are simply just disconnected from our own hearts. Like I'm talking about the idea of something breaking your heart and, and that, that can be like an over-romanticized language. I don't mean that in that sense. Something that really causes your soul to, to, to languish, to sorrow, to be like, this is not okay. It's not supposed to be this way. This is not supposed to be this way. We're just disconnected. We're hardened and numb. This is what's amazing about the fact that Nehemiah didn't just continue praying he continued fasting and praying. One of the primary purposes of fasting is to reorder our appetites. It's to rekindle our hunger for God and for his purposes above our own purposes. And so, when you realize where I was going with this sermon, and that I was going to be inviting you to connect to what is the stuff that's not okay that God's calling you to be a part of? 
And it could be multiple purposes, multiple environments, and they probably change over the course of your life. It's not some magical one thing necessarily. That's, that's, that's romanticism. If your first movement was towards cynicism or towards being jaded, like whatever, that's just a millennial preoccupation, then, then I would wonder, is your heart turned off? Have, have, have you shut it off? Is there, is there nothing to weep and grieve over because there's no way anything could ever be grieved over in your heart? Have you shut it down? And, or Honestly, are, are you medicating and escaping? You're not going to weep over anything physically or metaphorically. When, when you're consumed by other things that turn everything off, whether it's substances, whether it's fantasy and pornography, whether it's, whether it's video game escaping, or whether it's, it's being so engaged in a particular sporting context that, it, that it's, it's life itself and it's just numbing, it's just escaping, it's just punching out. You're not going to weep over anything. You can't. Your, your heart's not alive enough. Chronic distraction syndrome, which is what we all suffer from. There's always something to look up, to look at, to read, to receive, to follow up on. So our hearts are turned off. Instead, this we know. That God's desire is to activate your heart. His desire is to take all that has been true about you, all the things that he has desired to be true through you, and boom, to clear. To clear other things out so that this can become something, these can become things that make a real, tangible, lasting, faith-building difference in you and more significantly through you. It's what you were made for what you're rescued for. He desires to activate our hearts and then he's put us together so that we would spur one another on. Someone said to me a couple weeks ago or a week ago, they said, um, I find that there's little to no expectation that the normal Christian life is one of calling or of impact, or of meaningful, of meaning-filled engagement, and yet it should be. Have we, have we believed that? That you're just getting by? That that's your purpose? That that's why God made you, is just to make it through this next whatever? Or is there something or are there things, significant things that he has prepared for you? Ephesians 2.10 says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. He's remade us in Christ, created us anew, and then he's got these good works. And all I know is this. The more we walk in those good works that he's prepared for us, which means he, like, he's bought in, like he's all in, the more we walk in those works, the more we're alive. The more we're connected to what causes our, our weeping, the more we're connected to what causes our weeping, the more clear we are in what we're walking in because those are usually connected to one another. This activated life, this responsive to God life, this 
life of movement is what we call here at Roswell life on mission. And this is how, this is how we describe it. Living out of my renewed identity in Christ, who I am, because of what Christ has done, I listen to God and I respond to his call and leading. Are we listening to God and then are we responding to his call and his leading? Stewarding what he's gifted, how he's gifted me and and prepared me and where he's placed me and spending myself for the redemptive good of my family, neighbor, church, and, and world. This is what the people of God who lived in Jerusalem, who'd been made the people of God by being covenanted by God, by his work, him making them a people and them not being a people. They were no one, but he made them his people. That's what they were supposed to be reflecting. And that's what we're invited to reflect, to be the kind of people who are, who are spending ourselves for the redemptive good of other people. You know, that's, it's in that that your truest life is, Right? Because if you know who you are in Christ and you have a sense, a clear and clear and growingly clear sense of how you're supposed to be offering who you are and you're spending yourself in that way, you're going to be one alive person. You stick out. You smell like Jesus. Stuff happens around you and through you. You're powerful. You understand that's, that's how we were made to be. That's, how, that's what we were purchased for. That's, that's how we were remade to live like that. And the greatest risk is that we live asleep, disconnected from our hearts, hiding from what might cause us to actually break, not seeing the good that God is preparing for us. And so, a couple solutions. One is proximity. If there is any sense, if there is any areas, if there are any environments where you're sensing, when you know, maybe you know, that God's leading you to, to offer, to be a part of the solution for your morning to create movement, then you gotta get proximity. You gotta get nearer. I think one of the beautiful things about seeing the, 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 the kind of work that's happened in you, Leslie, is because of proximity. Like you've been, you've seen, you've, you've watched goats be delivered and seen what happens on their faces. And so like, you won't leave us alone about this anymore, right? I mean, like, it matters. She saw it. She was right there. She can't undo that. Proximity does stuff. And I don't even see my neighbor because I drive into my garage. We're so not proximate to anything. Like... Jesus came near, proximity, here, with you and me. So proximity, taking one step, one decision, one faith movement out of what God has already shown you, already revealed. If you've never done the Life on on Mission Discovery Guide, which is not going to answer all your things in the world, I'm not saying it is. It's supposed to be a guide to let God help your heart move towards, to ask the questions, to try and like, is there some jump-starting that could happen in me? Maybe this is, here's some arenas that are significant. What if my heart breaks for nothing? Where do I begin? Well, reflect and probably repent. 
take this very prayer and look at all the ways in which Nehemiah, who from everything we're going to experience from him, seems to really have his crap together. Can I just say? Like he's one of those guys you're like, we can't really find the major faults in you. Is one of contrition. He, he enters with humility, with I know there's something amiss and afoot in me. So reflect and then repent and then ask God to stir your heart. Pray, pray Ephesians 2.10 back to him. Okay, so Lord, you said you got some good works. You said that you prepared them, which means that I'm supposed to walk in them. Like, I don't know how to walk maybe. I don't know where they are or maybe I'm on the wrong path, but like, will you lead me? Will you guide me? And then, you know, for four months maybe, Knock, persevere. What good works have you prepared for me? And in the meantime, Ivy told me a friend of her said this. She says, if you don't have something you feel specifically called to, find something that God approves of, delights in, cares about, and participate there. Like that you're pretty much a sure thing. And then while you're there, pay attention. Pay attention to your soul. Ask other people their feedback of how they're experiencing you. Come alive in motion and in movement. I don't know that, this is a way overstatement, I don't know that there's been a, a generation in the sense of where we can talk more about stuff because we know more stuff about all the ills of the world and can yet still be engaged so little. It's just, there's a, there's a placebo effect about, about writing a comment on a blog post instead of getting in the mire with people. Because people are messy Whew. and costly. That's where all the good is. That's what the redeemed people of God are supposed to be in, is in, in, in the mess, in the muck, in the mire, because we know the one who lifts everything out of that, including us. So we're not impressed with ourselves. We bring Jesus, not us. What we're going to see in Nehemiah, we even see today, is that Nehemiah seeks ways for God to build his faith to build a life of faith. And today, I think God maybe wants to restore your faith, rebuilding some of the things that have been torn down or broken down, invigorating it maybe in new ways that haven't happened before and and shifting it from just mourning or to no mourning into mourning with movement. That's what you were made for. How do we do this? Goodness sakes, it's as though Nehemiah knew we needed to hear the gospel. In verse 8 and 9, Nehemiah quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 30, reminding God of what God said he would do. And listen, he says, Remember the words that you, Lord, commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. Loved ones, Christians are a sent people. We're a sent people that have been sent from having been received. That's what we remember every week when we come and take the elements. We come and we receive from God his unbelievable grace. We, we are these people 
who, who didn't follow any of those things, didn't obey his commands, and are, were scattered by rebellion and by sin, and through Christ were gathered in. We're an ingathered people. We're people who've been brought home. That, that's what it means to be a Christian. You've been brought home. And you know when you're safe at home, you can do? You can leave the home and do amazing things. Because unlike Jerusalem, which was a static place, God's given us the Spirit. The Spirit of God, which goes with you every single place that you're needed and that God is needed. We're people who've received grace and who've received power, that we may walk in grace and in power everywhere we go. And that's what this table reminds us of. This morning, this table invites us to receive the grace and power of God that will enable us to be the kind of people who can and will weep over what God puts in your heart and life today and in the days to come. And having, having walked in that, we'll begin to move. God moves people because he's a God who moves towards us. And so this morning, as you come and receive the elements, receive them as the God who moved towards you and is now inviting you to move in his things, in his ways. Let's pray. Father, thank you for... Thank you for your grace. My, my. In the utmost parts of the heavens, as far flung as we could be, enemies and, and having no care in the world to be your people or to care about your purposes, you sought us, you chased us, you found us, you brought us home, and you caused your name to dwell in us. And, and that's what we want to live from with all the ways in which you want our hearts to be awakened to your purposes in us. So would you do that? Awaken us and move us, Lord. Fill us and empower us. We want to be a people who, because we are changed, bring change. And we want all of that to be to the glory of your name because we exist to glorify you. And there, there is no better purpose. So Lord, would you give us the joy of being a part of that as we give ourselves away in the name of Christ, our Savior. Amen. If you belong to Jesus, you've been received by him, this is your meal. Come, receive the body and the blood of Christ for you.